Shortly after the new year, I went to an exercise class. And as I walked into the class, the instructor came running in with a scale under her arm. And she said, I want everyone who wants to, to weigh now. And then we're going to weigh again in eight weeks and find out how much weight we've lost for our New Year's resolutions. Well, what's interesting, nobody gave anybody eye contact. Several of us just left the room for a few minutes until that trauma was over. And so I, I came to understand that I have SAS, scale aversion syndrome. Uh, I don't want to know how much I weigh except when I do my physical once a year and I have to get on the scale because I like to think that I am at this level when I'm really at this level. There's a psychological disorder for that. I read a periodical about that and it is called information avoidance or strategic ignorance. True. So that's a true psychological term. It means that you don't want to know the truth so you just avoid it. You don't balance your bank book because you don't want to know you don't have much money. You don't want to get on scales. You don't want to do this. It's called information avoidance or strategic ignorance. When we moved into a house, we're living now about a year and a half ago. We had a lot of stuff packed, and we had two bathrooms, and the bathroom that Sarah and I used had no mirror. We couldn't find a mirror that fit. So, so for the first two or three months, we had no mirror in the bathroom. And my wife kept saying, I don't like not having a mirror in the bathroom. I'd go to the other bathroom and do my stuff. And I thought, I love not having a mirror. <laughs> now, you don't believe this, but after I take a shower, it takes me 1.5 minutes to groom myself and hit the door. I don't do much. But, but during that time, I have to look in the mirror. See, if you don't have a mirror, you can think instead of my age, you're 26. You have 10% body fat and you are a stud. So, you know, it was good living in information avoidance or strategic ignorance without a mirror. Then they put one up and it's all gone. So the, the scripture of, addresses this in James chapter 1, talks about the authority of scripture. And it says this in verse 22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law that gives liberty and perseveres in that, not forgetting what it looks like, will be blessed in his doing. So James says, it's the perfect law that gives liberty and it leads to blessing. The scripture is given as a narrative to tell us how to live and to bring blessing into our lives and, and to teach us the road that we walk along as we follow hard after Christ. And so I'm doing this series on stewardship and I said last week the stewardship is the embrace of a divine trust with joy and sobriety. I want to add a word this week. Stewardship is the glad embrace it's the glad embrace of a divine trust, and you do so with joy and sobriety. It is, it's a glad embrace because we're made in the image of God. We're called into fellowship with the Lord. We've been given tasks. We're going to give an account, and we have purpose and meaning and passion because we live before the living God. We don't just exist as nothing, made of nothing, going nowhere. We are people called of God into fellowship with Him, and we are to represent Him in this world, and one day we'll give an account in heaven. So it's, it's a joyful embrace, and you do so with joy and sobriety. 
And the question is, what type of people ought we to be? As we live out this life of stewardship, when we say the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your name be glorified, exalted, lifted high. What type of people must we be to hallow or to praise or to honor the name of the living God? And in Matthew chapter 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, verse 13, he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, so Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. A salt gives flavor and it preserves. As you live life, you should give flavor to the life around you. and You should preserve a godly influence and leave a lasting legacy. You're the light of the world. You're to, you're to so shine that people see your good works and say, that's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a, a disciple of Jesus. So, so we're to be salt and light. And, and the question is, as you look at the text, is how do you live that way? What, what's the process? And, and I believe that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, feeds this. Jesus gave us eight character traits that should mark our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. So these are the eight character traits. And we said last week as we studied this, I said that blessed are the poor in spirit, which means you see your sin. And you see you're undone without the mercy of Christ, and then you mourn over your sin. And as you see your sin, and as you mourn over your sin, the next step, we'll cover today, the next two, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you, you, you see your sin, you mourn, and then the gospel breaks in. And the gospel breaks in and says, you know, yes, you're a sinner, yes, you're separated from the grace of God, but Jesus died on the cross for your sin, therefore you can be meek. As you grieve over your sin, you can be meek. And meekness is this. It is, it is a humble and gentle attitude towards others, which a, is determined by a true estimate of yourselves. Now, this is so contradistinction contra to what the world says. It's the counterculture. Meekness is a true estimate of ourselves, which leads to a humble and gentle attitude, especially towards others. Now listen, you cannot have the Sermon on the Mount by taking one verse and seeing it in isolation. It hangs together. Poor in spirit. Then you mourn. And people who are poor in spirit mourn are teachable. And they're approachable. 
and they realize the world is not centered around them. And then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, so, so Jesus in Matthew 11 talks about humility and brokenness. And he says this in verse 25. I, th I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to mere children, us. Now, he says this tongue-in-cheek. It's like in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the, the folly of the cross saves us. That if you think you're wise, and if you think you've got it together, and if you think you're the king of the universe, you can never have room in your heart for the gospel. So Jesus says, you've hidden these from the self-proclaimed wise and understanding and with it and trendy and a group of people, and you've revealed this gospel to little children who come by faith. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So, so you say, well, how do I know that I am one of God's little children? You're weary and heavy laden. You can't do it on your own. You're poor in spirit. You mourn, which makes you somebody who is, who is, who is meek. So this, this year of 2017, I've said, I really want to pray through the Psalms. So I, I pray through several Psalms every day. What I do is I'll read a Psalm, and then I'll think about it, and then I'll try to rephrase it by praying through it. And so as I've, I've, you know, I've got four or five Psalms that are my favorite Psalms, Psalm 91, Psalm 16, you know, Psalm 84. But, but when you really start praying through all the Psalms, you see that really most of the Psalms, the psalmist is saying, I'm in a hole, I need help. Or wicked men are pursuing me, God protect me, let them dig a pit and fall into it. But time after time, the psalmist says, God help me, help me. And so Psalm 30 is the psalm I've been thinking about lately. And so Psalm 30 is just a general psalm, a psalm supposedly that they sang when they went into the temple and the Old Testament. But it's just the unfolding of it is very interesting to me. The psalmist says in the first part of the psalm, Lord, you haven't let my foes rejoice over me, verse 1. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. Oh, Lord, you brought me up my soul from the point of death, Sheol, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. He says, Lord, I was sinking, I was in trouble, but you healed me. And you go, what, what, what's going on? We don't know what was going on. But you get a hint in verse 6. Listen. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Close quote. By your favor, O Jehovah, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. So here, I think here's the issue. David is powerful. He's, he's, he's got it all together. He's got an arm, standing army. He's the king. And David says, you know, I, I was sinking in the pit because I just forgot God. I looked around. I said, you know, I've got it all together. And he says, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. I am the man. I've got it. And he says, but God, you hid your face for a moment, and I was dismayed. Dismayed. Undone. And then he ends by saying, 
You've turned my mourning into dancing and you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I'll give thanks to you forever. And I thought, that, 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 that's, that's meekness. You, you say, Lord, I, I said, I will never be moved, but then you hid your face and my world fell apart. I went down to Sheol. I fell into the pit. Therefore, Lord, by your grace, sustain me. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Which speaks about, I think, the future reign of God's people primarily will be given you know, responsibilities and joy, but also talks about the present-day joy. John 1, for example, says, of the grace of Christ, we receive blessing after blessing after blessing. Do you want to receive the blessing of God? Then be poor in spirit, grieve over your sin, and be approachable and teachable and understand that the sin of the world is Christ and not you. Bear Bryant supposedly said, somebody sent me this this week. Bear Bryant, the coach at Alabama, was having a difficult time. His offensive line wasn't performing, and he said, tongue-in-cheek, he said, if the meek inherit the earth, my offensive linemen will one day be land barons, you know. <laughs> blessing after blessing. And then... The other reality is that sin and the devil operates on a sliding scale of frustration and abandonment. This was in the Wall Street Journal this week. The Wall Street Journal, front page. It talks about there's a new movement where the article's entitled, Are You Tired of Making Bad Sports Bets? You Can Now Outsource Them. And uh, sometimes, you know, I, I'm a pretty savvy sports observer. I won't, don't, humility precludes me from saying much more than that, but I, I can, I, I, I'm pretty good. And I look at the line item and the point spread and I think, you know, I, I think I can make some money. No. I just do, I, I've never gone online and done it, but I think, uh, no, can But now that what's happening now, there's a movement now where, where instead of you sweating it, you just send money into these new startup website places and, and they will make the sports bets for you, these experts who have looked and thought and looked and labored and thought. And so that, that's a new, it's a new cottage industry has just started up. But in this article, this is what's interesting. This is the Wall Street Journal. They interview a guy named Chris Conley. He's from Seattle. He's 31 years old. And he runs an entity fund called Contrarian Investments, which specializes in targeting underdogs and out-of-favor picks. So he Give me your money, I'll make bets, and we'll make money together. So he's asked, how have you done so far this year? He says, I'm down 15%. R really? So where do I send my money? I want to get a minus 15% return on my money. I mean, I can't believe he gave his name and his website. I mean, what? he needs a marketing director is what he needs. But, but I thought, when I read that, I thought, that's the way the devil operates. That's the way the world operates. Look at this, look at this. I can do that. It's just not 15% loss of money. No big deal. The law of diminishing returns. So, so meekness, once again, is gentleness towards others based upon a true estimate of myself. See, I want you to understand this. A guy named Moses in the Old Testament. Moses was born uh, when Pharaoh, the king, was killing Hebrew baby boys. And so his mama and his sister plotted 
They put him in a basket, pushed him down the river. When Pharaoh's daughter, I mean the main man, the king's daughter, is taking a bath, she sees the basket goes over. There's a beautiful boy. says he was beautiful in the sight of the Lord. It's a handsome baby. And she loved him and took him home and educated him as her son. Uh, he had every privilege of a prince of Egypt, education, wealth, power. He, he was nurtured in a strange twist of events. He was nurtured by his mama and his sister. So he understood that he was a Hebrew, but he's a privileged prince of Egypt. And, and so in Acts chapter 7, there is a statement made, an, an encapsulation of Old Testament history by a guy named Stephen. And so Stephen's talking about Moses, and he says that Moses was, was blessed of God, and this is what happened. Uh, Moses goes out one day. He's 40 years old. He's in the prime of life. He's 40, he goes out, and, and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave, one of his countrymen. And, and Moses, in rage and anger, gets into a fight with the Hebrew, excuse me, with the Egyptian taskmaster who's beating people, and he kills him. And he buries him in the sand, the Bible says. And the next day, Moses goes out and he thinks, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the champion. I'm now the champion of my people, the Jews, and they're going to really think I'm hot stuff because I'm, 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 I'm young, I'm viral, I'm educated, and I have power. And so he sees two Hebrew guys getting into a fight over something, and Moses says to them, hey, guys, cut it out. And one guy, a surly character, says, you know, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses thought, uh-oh, people know. So he fled for his life. He had to flee for his life. He ended up in the desert, and he ended up being a shepherd. This prince of Egypt becomes a shepherd. What's interesting in the dialogue in Acts chapter 7, let me read verse 30. And this is what Stephen says. Now, when, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord, I am the Lord your, of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said, take off your sandals. I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, Moses is in the wilderness for 40 years being broken of his arrogance. Learning meekness. The Bible describes him in the Old Testament as the most humble man on the face of the earth. And I thought about desert experiences that we've all had. A few weeks ago, on Friday morning, I told, told them that Winston Churchill, one of my heroes is Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England during World War II, was high in the cabinet in World War I, and he developed a plan to have an underbelly attack against Germany through a place called Gallipoli. It would have worked, I think, if it had been carried out well. Anyway, it ended up being a disaster, and Churchill was scandalized and asked to leave the cabinet. Basically, he went to the trenches and fought in World War I, but really from about 1923 until 1939, Winston Churchill was considered a pariah a social outcast. He went to a place called Chartwell and he painted and built brick walls and wrote his memoirs. They thought he was done, over, finished, kaput. And he kept saying, he was a solitary voice that kept saying, beware Nazi Germany, beware Hitler, beware, beware. do not disarm, do not cut down our military, beware. 
And people laughed at him and considered him an outdated old man. And then in 1939, Hitler attacked Poland. He conquered the Low Country and France in a matter of weeks. And England was standing against the world. And they said, please, can you come back? He came back. He was prime minister. And he stood against Nazi Germany by himself with England for two years, basically, before the U.S. came in the war. And they, but they called 1923 to 1939, 16 years for Winston Churchill, the wilderness years. I would say the desert experience. And I look, at, I look at Moses, I'm going, life is filled with experiences that are, have, have brokenness and hardship, and either you run to the cross and you pursue the living God and the joy and the peace and the hope that he gives, or you tube out. But life is filled with brokenness. But see, you'll, you'll never hunger and thirst for righteousness Okay? Unless you're poor in spirit and you're meek and, and you mourn and you're meek. You just want because you're gonna think I've got it together. Or if I just try harder, I'll get it together. Life is filled with broken places. And I'm thinking about all the young people that'll be hearing this sermon today. College, and I'm just thinking, Lord, give them an, a, a, a glimpse of the, the desperation of their souls. Give them a one-week desert experience, or some of us a one-month, but some, many of us have had a year or two or three years, man, desert experience where God was breaking me to show me his grandeur. Life is filled with places where we can be broken. Your marriages, your parenting, your friendships. We just, Sir and I just completed this new ministry that's going to start in March called Reengage. There was a pilot group that went through. It's it from marriage in Richmond, no matter where you are in your marriage. It's a 16 week. You're with other people. You discuss and go through some subjects. And we had the study material. We covered grace and forgiveness and communication and expectations and communication and marital fidelity and marital intimacy and communication and, um, and, and grand communication and. And uh, we, we are now graduates of Reengage. I say honor graduates, but we're graduates. And, and so you're taking this course. And when I heard about it, I told Sarah, I said, they're going to teach this course. And she says, uh, we need to take that. And I went, eh. She says, no, we need to take that. I said, I said yes, ma'am. And we did. And so you go through this material, and it's really good material. It's, sound theologically, and you get to week 16, and you think, you know, I've been doing this for 16 weeks, doing the homework, hanging in there, doing classes, and you get to the very last lesson, and this is what it says, and it's so disheartening, very discouraging. It says this, marriage will continue to be hard. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> it says, don't be surprised when you find it difficult as a sinner to pursue oneness with another sinner. And I'm going, you don't work for Hallmark. <laughs> but that is so true, isn't it? The problem with your marriage is you're married to a sinner. Amen. Amen. And you're a sinner. And it's, what I'm saying is there are always going to be broken places where you need to repent and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. In marriage, in parenting, you name it, it's there. My issue for me is, do I run to the cross or do I double down and get bitter? I was walking through Colossians the other day, just thinking about Colossians. We'll go back to that in a few months but, or a few weeks. In Colossians, 
The Apostle Paul is talking about this church he's never seen before, and he's heard good reports about them. And he just, he says in verse 5, he says, for, for though I'm absent, chapter 2, I'm absent from you in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ. He says, you know, you're firm, you're strong, you're going forward, you're filled with love. And then the very next verse, he says this. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, yes, you're firm, yes, you're strong, you're going for it, but go hard because you're never done. You never hit the finish line to the day you die. You, you desperately need grace every day. How easy we forget. How easy I forget. How easy I forget to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to meet, be meek and to hunger and thirst. How easy I forget that I am what I am by the grace of God. There's a young lady who came to our church for several years when she first came here. She was from, I think, I forgot what country in Europe, but she came here and lived in Charleston. And she talked to me and she said, you know, I've, I've, I've been very confused. She had great English. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'll go to the grocery store and people say to me, hi, how are you doing? And I'll start telling them how I'm doing. And I'll say, well, I'm, I'm doing well, but I'm struggling. I'm just, I said, well, to, they don't really mean what they say. They don't really care how you're doing. It's just the way we try to be nice in the South. Hi, how are you doing? And, and she goes, oh, now I understand. But when people say to you, hi, how are you doing, really? We should parrot the statement to the church at Laodicea. And in, in the book of Revelation, there's a church, and the Lord says, I have this against you. You think you're the man. You think you've got it all together. You think that you're, you're, you're really solid and strong and everybody else is on the outside. You're Mr. Insider, they're Mr. Outsider. But you don't realize you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. People say, how are you doing? You say, well, I'm okay, but really I'm wretched, I'm pitiful, I'm poor, I'm blind, and I'm naked. You say, whoa, have a good day. But listen, that's the truth. And it's just easy to forget. I will never hunger and thirst for righteousness unless I see that I am in need. And here's a promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or filled. They'll be filled with the fullness of God. They'll, they'll be blessed, and, and, and they'll be a blessing to other people. So very quickly, th there's a statement here by John Calvin that just how I need to know my need, and this is what Calvin says. One of the reformers, uh, he says, um, I always have trouble finding the notes. I found it. He says, a, a certain man has abundant wine and grain, since he cannot enjoy a single morsel of bread apart from God's continuing favor, his wine cellars and granaries will not hinder him from praying for his daily bread. And Calvin says, you know, you can have a bumper crop and you can have several, you know, 401c3s or whatever CDs, but, 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 but unless you have the presence of God in your life, the joy will only be minimal. That's why we pray. He says, even when your granaries are full and you have an abundance of wine, you still pray, give me this day my daily bread. 
New thought. It says, now, now if we should consider how many dangers at every moment threaten, fear itself will teach us that we at no single time may leave off our praying. So it says two things. It says, you know, God gives you enjoyment, and secondly, God protects you. And so I, I've got to see that my, my need for Christ. And here's the second thing. This is my prayer. I think we can be believers and, and do the right thing and never taste on an ongoing basis the sweetness and the joy of knowing Christ. I think we can touch the hem of the garment without really walking in fellowship with Jesus. There's a guy named Augustine, died in 430, wrote a book called the Confessions. And, and, and just throughout the book, he just breaks into prayer. And I've got one of his prayers here, or part of it here. And, and he says, this is just so cool. He says, who, who, who will grant me this grace? That you should come into my heart and inebriate it. Knock it over. Enabling me to forget the evils that beset me and to embrace you, my only good. He says, God, I want to see you and taste you and know you as my only good. I don't want to just do the right thing. I want to know you. I want to worship you. I want to, I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I want to know you. Not about you, not axioms. I want to know you. And then later he says in the same prayer, he says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Say it so I can hear it. My heart is listening, Lord. Open the ears of my heart and say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let me run towards this voice and seize hold of it. I want that. I want to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And then as we do that, very quickly we make character adjustments, attitude adjustments, uh, and we understand this is a lifelong pursuit. It will never be done. Now, so you make adjustments. In other words, you make adjustments so you can think and read and, 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 and understand the character of God. Um, therefore, you make adjustments to your schedule. Example for me, I am a morning person. I love the morning. I don't have children in the home. Obviously, they're gone. I don't like morning meetings unless I have to, have to, have to be there because that's my time to just read and study and pray. I'm fresh in the morning. The afternoon, I'm done. So I can meet with people all day long because I need to be stimulated. But early in the morning, that's just... That's, so, so some of you are night people. So, what I'm saying is you need to find time to think and to meditate and to rejoice in the goodness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to do that. You've got to do that. You've got to be involved in the body of Christ and be around people who love the Lord. So you see, I, I have scale aversion syndrome. I don't like mirrors in bathrooms because I have blemishes because I'm getting old. I went to a seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, Dean and Carl schooling. We went to the same seminaries, and there's a rotunda, and the main folks of the campus with the rotunda, beautiful rotunda. They had the pictures of all the presidents on, around the walls, and the man who started our seminary was a man named Benjamin Harvey Carroll, B.H. Carroll. B.H. Carroll was a Texas Ranger, and then he became a believer, and he was, a, he was huge, six foot three, huge gray beard, and just a powerful man, uh, a godly man. And so the rumor is uh, that in the 
Rotunda, you can look at his hand. He's, got a, he's sitting there with his hand on his knee. And there's a smudge. The, the hands, there's a smudge there. And, and the rumor is that when they paint his original portrait, they painted a big cigar in his hand. And that was before the Surgeon's General Report when everybody realized smoking was bad. So he, he was, a big, he was a, a big cigar smoker. And they said after the Surgeon's General Report came out in 1963, which is long after he was dead, they, they painted the cigar out. I thought, I, I, I do that. I want people to paint out my blemishes. Then I was reading an article years ago about, about, about these incredibly handsome people in these ads in their major magazines. And it says that the, the average model in one of our ads has 30 touch-ups to their photograph. 30. And I thought, I could look good with 30 touch-ups, major touch-ups with 30 touch-ups. So I, I want to live in the land of, of, of painting out my cigars and touch up my blemishes. But the reality is, God has done that for me in Jesus. The, the Lord looks at me in his tender mercies and he says, I love you. I care for you. You're mine. Yes, that was in your life. Yes, that was there. But you know what? You're forgiven. You have hope. You have freedom. Now follow me. And that's, that's the beauty of this. Yes, you mourn over your sin. Yes, you're poor in spirit. Yes, you're approachable and teachable and before others because you have a correct estimate of yourself. And as you are poor in spirit, and as you mourn and as you're meek, then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and you know what? As you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you see the beauty of Jesus and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what? You shall be filled. So I'm going to be that type of person. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for the goodness of Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Work in us, Lord. I, I pray we'd be an approachable, teachable people. I probably be, I'd be an approachable, teachable person. Um, I pray that we would truly realize that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I pray we glorify you and enjoy you. I, I pray that we do that as we are poor in spirit and as we mourn and as we're meek, that we would hunger and thirst to know you. So, Lord, work that in our lives, I pray. And this week, may we be people who represent Christ wherever we go. Speak a good word for Christ. Talk about the goodness of Christ. Rejoice in it. Sing. And like the psalmist says, you've turned my mourning into dancing. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.